Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about Redemption, you can go to redemptionseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. Hey, welcome again to Redemption. Uh, My name is Drew, and I'm one of the pastors here. And man, it's good to be back. It's It's been about a month. And it's kind of flown by, but man, missed you guys a ton. And thanks for all the encouragement and support. Um, the sun and 70 degrees also helped down in South Carolina, but uh, it was sunny here too when we got back. Um, but it really has meant a ton. Um, man, this past month has been a blast. Becoming parents, uh, there's, there's nothing quite like it. And um, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you again to you as a church. Also, I want to say thank you to our pastors here. Um, Alex for, man, holding down the fort for a month and just doing so much extra. Um, thank you so much for that, Alex. Like, it's amazing. Um, he loves you guys, and uh, I know that you've noticed since he's come and been here for the past few years, like, just the love that he brings. And so I hope you've, um, make sure to thank him for that. Also, just our other pastors and Greg, I know, doing stuff for life groups. It's been amazing so that, um, so that we could hang and uh, try to keep our heads on straight and get as much sleep as, as you can get. Um, but it is so good to be here this morning and to be opening up this new series with you in Revelation, these two chapters. And as Alex said, we're starting in this book today and specifically just looking at Jesus' word to seven specific churches, seven specific bodies of believers in chapters two and three. And we're going to take one week for each one. And it's all going to culminate on Easter, which is going to be awesome. Um, but before we jump into these letters and really to the, to the heart of this passage today, it's important to understand the context of this book. Um, Revelation has been a book that's fascinated a lot of people for over 2,000 years, both inside the church and also um, outside of the church, because honestly, a decent chunk of it reads like really a, a wild acid trip, if you will, um, for lack of better words. Um, you've got talk of dragons, angels, war, disaster, visions of the future, and even uh, the end of the world, right? And the title of this book, uh, this is apocalyptic literature. It's apocalyptic language that's used. And what this really means, so the title of the book in Greek would be the apocalypse, Now, when we think of apocalypse, we just think of total destruction, but that's not really what the word means. Um, It doesn't mean the end of the world or even a terrible disaster, but rather the revelation that there's something that has been revealed, something that is coming. And that's what this book is all about. And at the very, even in the very first line of Revelation, um, the book tells us that Jesus reveals these things that we're going to read. He reveals them to the apostle John who in turn reveals them to Jesus' people, that's us, the church. And John writes this book in about AD 95 during the reign of the emperor um, Domitian. And this is important because at this time, this emperor, he had enacted or launched a general persecution on Christians. And John himself has been exiled to this prison island called Patmos because of his preaching about Jesus And it's during this time that Jesus really shows up and shows him this series of visions which John pins for the church so that we can see what's coming. And what John sees in these visions, if you've ever read this book, it's it's really mind-blowing. He sees great swings in world power. He sees God's people being pressed to the point of destruction. And he sees Jesus, the king, returning to bring a full and final end to all evil, to save his people and to make a new world where they can live with him for eternity. 
Now, some of you, maybe you just needed to hear that this morning. Anybody just need to hear that? That Jesus is coming, and he's going to put an end to all evil. He's going to put evil in its place. He's going to put sickness in his place. He's going to put depression in his place. He's going to put loneliness in its place, addiction in its place. Ultimately, he's going to put death in its place because of what he's already accomplished on the cross, but he's not just ruling and reigning right now. He is going to come again and bring everything to fruition and is going to make all things new and right, just like they were back in Genesis 1. Anybody just need that encouragement today as you're going through some stuff? You're like, man, that's just good to hear that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make all things new and all things right. Yeah. It's a great encouragement to us. And if you were these churches in the midst of this persecution and pressure, and even if you're us today and we have these different pressures that are placed upon us as the church, as as a Jesus-believing, Bible-believing, gospel-centered church, you need this. If you live in a post-Christian world like ours, you need this. What do I mean by post-Christian? Well, here's a little bit of a definition. A society in which agnosticism or atheism is a prevailing fundamental belief. It's a society rooted in the history, culture, and practices of Christianity, but in which the religious beliefs of Christianity have been either rejected or worse forgotten. And that's very much the culture that we live in. That's very much the world that we find ourselves in today. And so these churches were, and we are under real pressure to walk away from, water down, possibly even just completely abandon our faith in Jesus. And that's why this book is even so important to us. That's why we need to listen to this. That's why we not, don't need to just say, well, these, this was written to seven churches, you know, thousands of years ago. What does it really have to do with me today? It has everything to do with us today because the pressures may look different, but they're just as real for us. And so that's why these letters, at the heart of it, as Alex said, the heart of this and, and why our, our series is called, what is it? Hold fast. This is Jesus literally saying, hold fast, press on drive forward, don't walk away, don't give up, don't give in, hold on and hold fast to the king who is risen, who is reigning, and who is coming back for his bride. And so that's the context, and now we get into these seven letters to these seven churches, these, body, these church bodies in the province of Asia Minor, but it's applicable for all churches today. And over the next seven weeks, we're going to hear different things in each of these letters, and I would just encourage us, and I would challenge us to just be open to hear, because there's going to be things that we as Redemption Church need to hear in this. There's going to be things that we're doing well, that Jesus commends in some of these churches. There are going to be things that he wants to challenge us with to grow in, because he cares for us so much. And so as we're going to see this first letter, it's penned to the church of Ephesus. That's what we're going to look at today. And besides being the capital of the province of Asia, Ephesus was and would have been from a New Testament standpoint the most important of the cities to which John wrote. This is where Paul spent um, three years. He made Ephesus his home. He did a lot of his um, evangelistic, uh, he, he made this really his evangelistic base throughout the area of Asia, um, the Asia province. As we're going to see, there are some great things happening inside of this church, absolutely, in Ephesus. Amazing things happening but there's also something missing, and Jesus doesn't hesitate to point that out. Because the same is true for us. Jesus cares about and he loves his bride too much to let them wander, to not say anything. And that's really what love does. So pray with me, and we're going to jump right into this passage, walk through it today. Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for how much you care for us, and thank you for giving us these words that we can take and hear, and God, I pray that you would give us hearts to really apply, um, to not dismiss, to really take a look at our heart, 
as a church, as individuals who make up the church, God, would you just speak to us through the power of the Holy Spirit? As you've uh, brought many of us out of death and into life, God, you are still discipling us. You're still making us more like you. So may we not make the mistake of thinking that salvation is where it ends, but really that's where it begins. So God, may we as a church become more mature. May, May we as a church become more centered on you. May we as a church become more burdened for our city. May we as a church become more in in love with you and in love with what you've called us to, to love one another. Jesus, thank you for leading us. Holy Spirit, thank you for being with us. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, so Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at the first seven verses. If you have a Bible, you can go there. It's going to be up on the screen as well, and we're going to jump right in. Here's here's what it says, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, let's stop right there because you're like, what? Seven stars, seven lampstands. What's it talking about here? Well, Jesus spoke uh, to John in this vision. He explained what these seven candlesticks were in Revelation 1.20. He says, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when you hear Jesus talk about this, when he's talking about the stars, he's talking about the angels that are connected with these local bodies. He's talking about the lampstands or candlesticks. He's talking about the church themselves. And that'll be important as we get further down in this passage, but it's, it's important to note. So here's what he says to the church. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And jump down to verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Jesus commends this church right off the bat. He says, here's where you're doing really well. If you were to look at this church, they were functioning well. They were a well-oiled machine. Their work ethic was unmatched. You don't see or hear about infighting or major sin issues that were going on within the church or things running rampant. This was a really grounded church. Jesus commends them on being able to see counterfeits from a mile away. They knew the gospel. They were able to test those who would come and claim to have apostolic authority or that would want to teach. They were able to test them and say, does this line up with Jesus' gospel or does it not? They were grounded. They were theological. They were deep. They had head knowledge, right? They knew what they believed, and they they had a firm foundation. Um, And false teachers and teachings during this time, they were were prevalent. That's why in verse 6, there's a mention of the Nicolaitans. What what this is, is this was this group of false teachers that had invaded the church of Pergamum, and possibly, we don't know for sure, but maybe other areas and possibly even visited Ephesus, and they had done great damage and Jesus commends them on seeing that and saying, that's not right. We're not, we're not doing that. That's, that's not what this is about. That doesn't line up. Jesus even talks about this is going to happen back in Matthew 24. He says, he predicted this. He says, many false teachers will appear and deceive many people. And so he commends this church and saying, hey, and I would even say for us as a church here at Redemption, I think we have a pretty good foundation. We don't try to stay on the surface of, of just like, hey, we're going to, you know, read maybe a half a verse today and then I'm going to 
tell you about what I did this weekend or, or you know, things like that. Or we're going to talk about here's five steps for um, how to conquer Monday, right? We, we try to go deeper because we believe that this is a word of life. We believe that this is literally God's word and that if we move away from this, we're, we're going we're gonna to be trying to live a works-based really reality in life that's not going to line up. We're going we're gonna to sway and go back and forth and end up sideways. We're going to buy into a lot of false beliefs and we're going to miss really the heart of the gospel. And so this church, they were, they were They were grounded. They were deep. Not only were they discerning, but they were also resilient. You notice what Jesus said here with all the persecution going on. They they were not only um, enduring patiently, and not just for themselves, but it says in the name of Jesus, for his namesake. And they weren't growing weary. These are some great things. Here's the question. Let's just stop. Let's pause there for a minute with these commendations that Jesus gives. Would Jesus say the same thing about us? Yes, would he say the same thing about us as a church as a whole, but also it's important for us to look at this individually because the church is made up of individuals. So think about it this morning. Is this true of you and your walk with Christ and the way that you live your day in and day out? Is this true of you? A couple questions. Maybe you want to jot these down to think of and reflect on later, but this is all about going deeper in our relationship with Christ. So we don't want to avoid these types of questions and and look at the hard things. But here's what we pull out of what Jesus just said here. Here's some questions. Do I regularly walk in or resist what God calls sin? So am I okay with it? Does it really affect me? Do I regularly just walk in it and kind of give in to it? Or do I resist it? As Jesus said, you resist what is evil. Do I call out and stand against what doesn't line up with the teachings of Jesus? Do I even know? Am I able to detect what doesn't line up with the teachings of Jesus? And if I see something, do I call it out? Do I reject it? And that's a hard thing, especially in our city, because there are a lot of kind of quasi-Christian beliefs that get co-mingled in and that we try to get sold on. There are a lot of different ideas and just ideologies and things that come our way. Are we grounded, so grounded in Jesus and his word and his teachings that we're able to stand against and reject that that doesn't line up? When things get hard, do I stand with Jesus and his truth, or do I tend to wander? Is my first resort to do what's best or easiest for me, or what's best for the kingdom of God? These are things that this church was doing well, that Jesus commends them on. The possibility of slowing down, pumping the brakes, kind of walking away from this whole Christianity thing. Things are getting tough. People are being persecuted. People are literally, when we say persecution, people are giving their lives for this. This isn't persecution like somebody, like you said, I'm a Christian and somebody gave you a weird look on the sidewalk, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, you will ne- you'll never believe how persecuted I was today. This guy gave me a weird look on the sidewalk. This was people literally laying down their lives for the cause of Christ. But all of this, watering down the message, walking away, it wasn't even on the radar. Honestly, in a lot of ways, this would have been a church you wanted to be a part of. Great teachers great elders that were trained up by Paul. Um, They had great, probably, ministries, packed calendars. They stood for the right things. They stood against the right things. They were a busy church working for the Lord. It says that. They didn't grow weary. They were working right for the right things. The people in their neighborhood would have looked and said, man, those must be good Christians. Look Look at all they're doing. If you were to sum up this church with one word based on what Jesus has already said, it would probably be this, faithful. So if that's true, what's the problem? 
Isn't that good? I mean, isn't, wouldn't we be content with that? Like, this is great. Let's just call it a day. Man, thank you. Like, if you got this report card from, from Jesus, it's just like, thanks. We're good. But Jesus wants to go to a deeper place, and he always wants that. He wants to get to a place in our hearts where we may be a bit resistant. That's what he wants to do for us today. To say, you may have great things going on, redemption. You may have good things going on. You may have good leaders. You may, you may be doing different ministries. You've got this foundation class and doing membership and you've got kids ministry and you've got life groups and you've got these things. But I want to go deeper. I want your heart. And that's why he says in verse four, but this, but this I have against you. What's Jesus getting at here? Based on what he's already said is what he's getting at is that mere works, mere works, no matter how many, are not enough to please God. He wants more than simply outward compliance. That's why he uses this very strong language, I have this against you. Now it's easy to read this and you could feel crushed or ridden with shame if we miss the heart behind it. Last week I was talking with a pastor friend and he said this and it stuck with me and I think it's very applicable for us today reading this passage. He said there's a big difference between yelling at someone and yelling for someone. There's a big difference between yelling at someone and yelling for someone. It made me think about high school. I ran track in high school. Um, I ran distance. Not the best, um, but I ran, I ran distance. And we had, we had several coaches, but for the distance runners, we mainly had two coaches and I remember them excuse me, because they had very different approaches. One would point out all of your weaknesses and really tell you to work harder, do better if you want to win, if you want to be successful. And I remember during races, if he was the guy on the track, you would run around a lap and he would be there with a stopwatch and he would yell something at you, you know, whatever, while you're running by to let you know. I remember when I would run a race and he would be there, his main thing was, um, that he would say was simply, go faster, pick it up. And I was like, okay. Obviously, that's what we're all trying to do here, right? We're all trying to go fast, right? If you're not first, you're last. Um, so that was one coach. The other coach was very different in his approach. When we would practice, when we would go through these things during the week, he would, he would encourage us first. He would share with us what we were doing well in, how we were growing, how, and then he would bring along these corrections, these caring corrections. Here's what I think you can do more at here. Let, and and let's, let's walk this out together. Let's look at how we can do this, how we can increase your speed, all these things. And when, when we would be in a race and you'd run around and he was your guy, he would encourage you. You're doing great. You're doing great. You can keep going. You can, you, you can do this. It was encouraging. Guess which coach people, people resonated with more, right? It's probably not hard to imagine. There's a big difference between yelling at someone and yelling for someone. And so we could read this and we could say, this is just Jesus just yelling at the church, right? Because when you yell at someone, it simply points out the problem. It just calls you out. But when you yell for someone, it's calling you to something better. Hey, there's this over here. Come this way. Don't go that way. It's always out of a desire for good and not just to produce results. And so although Jesus' words here are very serious and they're very strong, this isn't Jesus yelling at the church. He's yelling for the church. He's calling them back as a loving father would do, as someone who cares. So what's he calling them back to? He says, this I have against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Now some people interpret this as you have abandoned your first love 
And they would say, well, this means that this church, they had turned their back on Christ and they needed to come back to Christ. But we know that that's not true because he said in the beginning that they were standing firm and they were enduring and they hadn't grown weary. So the, the better interpretation is this. They had abandoned the love that you had at first. It's the how that Jesus wants them to think about. These works aren't bad. In fact, throughout these letters, a good work ethic is praised. But the heart the passion, the care, it was missing. The how. So the big idea in this, in this letter is really, really this. Good works are only good if they're done in love. Or another way to say it is love doesn't just ask what needs to be done, but it also asks how. How. I learned this very hard way with my first job, which was mowing lawns in my neighborhood. I went around and tried to make money at like 13 years old because I couldn't technically work yet legally um, in, a, in an establishment. So I, I thought, well, I'll go mow lawns for 20 bucks and I'll make some extra money. And, um, and so I did. Now, I remember learning this lesson very early on. There was this, this really sweet lady down the street, um, older lady, and uh, she let me mow her lawn. And, uh, and I did for several weeks. And it was a pretty big lawn, but I could get it done in like an hour. And I did. But after those four weeks, she, she said that she didn't need me to come back. <laughs> I was like, I don't get this. Very efficient. Come on time. Get the job done. And she explained to me in a very sweet way, because she didn't want to hurt my feelings, that although I was technically getting the job done, uh, my level of care was not the best. <laughs> I didn't really trim anything. I didn't really uh, pay attention to detail. Because my motivation was just to get paid. It was just to get this done and get paid. It was just to check the list. I did this. But there wasn't really any care. There wasn't really hard into it. I didn't really think about her or who I was doing it for, wanting to do a good job out of the right motivation. Jesus cares about the how we do things as a church. Very much so. And what's scary about this is this isn't an intentional abandonment by this church, but it's something they slipped into. I think about this season that we're in as a church. I think we have some really good things going on. We made some goals at the end of the year, and and as Alex shared last week in a members meeting, um, we have really good finances right now. It's great. We're able to open up new hires. Um, You guys affirmed three new missions initiatives to support international and local missions. Uh, We've got more people joining the church. We've got most of the church in life groups. I mean, there are some really good things going on, and we could stand back and we could say, we're, look at these things. We're good because we're checking the right boxes. And that's what Jesus is warning against. He's saying, don't just be about checking the right boxes. It's so easy for a church, even our church, to slide into that. It's easy for us to slide into that in our life in general. I mean, think about it. You can do marriage without love. You can technically do it. You can raise kids void of love. You can serve without love. You can spend time with others without love. We can do Sundays here together without love. And the list goes on and on and on and on. But if we choose to go that route, the impact at best will be surface level. And that's not what God wants for you. That's not what he wants for me. That's not what he wants for our church because that's not what he wants for our city. He wants us to go deep. He wants us to dive deeper. This church, what's amazing here is they were able to spot false doctrine from a mile away, but they missed the lack of love that was right in front of them. We can do the same. 
we're very much about the right doctrine, we're about the right theology, we're about believing the right thing, and it would be really easy for us to become somewhat heady in that. It would be easy for us just to go through the Christian motions of serving, of doing community together, all of those things, but how sad would it be is if in all of that we miss the heart of it, we miss love. We lack the love for one another and the love for those outside of the church. And I think this is far easier to do than we would even realize or we would even understand. And that's why Jesus points it out, and I think that's why it's the very first letter, too. Love. Love is at the heart of this. What kind of love? What kind of love have they abandoned? What kind of love is Jesus calling us to? Well, the best place to look, I think, is 1 Corinthians 13. It's a love that's patient and kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is this is love. This is the heartbeat that Jesus wants for us as the church. This is what this church had walked away from or became lacking in. And so if this is so important, which it absolutely is, how do we get back to it? Well, Jesus, being a loving Savior, doesn't just say, hey, here's what's wrong with you. Fix it. He says, hey, here's, here's how you make your way back. Check this out. First, verse 5, remember, therefore, where, you've, where you have fallen. He's inviting us to think back. We need to remember the love that we had at first, the love for God, the love for one another. He's calling us back to the start. And so personally for you this morning, just take a, take a minute and think about this. Go back to the moment you first met Jesus. Go back there. When was it? What was happening in your life? What were those feelings, those emotions of realizing that there was someone who knew you intimately, all of you, Everything good, everything bad, everything you had done, everything you had thought, and he wanted this relationship with you. Remember the love that you felt. Remember the stirring in your heart. Remember the way that it changed how you saw yourself and how you saw others. Not as a project to complete, but a people to love. Remember how grateful you were to have your sins forgiven Remember how much you wanted everyone around you to experience and to know this same reality, to meet Jesus. Remember, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, come back to it. Remember. Remember, don't go so far away from it. Maybe things have grown stale because you haven't thought back enough. You haven't been in that sweet spot that you were when, when we first met. Remember. Secondly, repent. He's saying if your heart has grown stale, if you know that there are some things in your life where motivations have gone sideways, where you're just checking the boxes, where, where love isn't present, where you know in your heart that this isn't the way that I should be living, this isn't the way that I should be interacting in my relationships, I really seem to be more selfish than selfless, I'm more prideful than I am caring. If you see these things within you, that the Holy Spirit, if He's within you, brings to our minds and brings out of our hearts, He's saying you have an opportunity to repent. And this isn't a shameful thing, this is a gift. Repentance is a gift. It means that we get to bring these things to Jesus. We get to lay them down in front of him. And he doesn't hit us over the hand. He doesn't smack us. He doesn't, he doesn't condemn us. But he says, you can bring these things to me that you know that I don't want for you. And you can lay these down and you can walk away from these. Turn your back on them. I'm inviting you to that. I'm inviting you to walk in a better reality. Repent, literally to turn. He's saying, turn away from those. If you've been loveless, turn away from it. Turn away from it. That's the start. Right, right there. Remember and then turn away. 
This is practical for all of us too. I mean, we could apply this to our, our relationships, you know, our marriage, family, friendships, all of it. Is there love missing? Is there love lacking? Is there, are there things that I need to repent of and turn away and turn to the love of Christ? And then lastly, he says this. So remember, the, remember from where you've fallen, repent, and then do the work you did at first. What I love about this, and I don't want you to miss, is, is this is grace, something we love here. Do the work you did at first. This is a sign of grace, meaning just because you've abandoned your first love, this isn't it. You can move forward. I'm not turning my back on you. Jesus isn't turning his back on us, but he says, do the work you did at first. Just start anew. I mean, for some of us, we get so frustrated or we, we feel so condemned because we're like, you know, I've been living this way for so long or, 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 or maybe my relationships have grown stale for so long, it, it just feels like, what's the, what's the use? And Jesus is inviting us into, into really turning, starting anew. I love this. Is that it's this opportunity to return, not on our own, in Christ's power. But he says, you can do this. Do the works that you did at first. And a people that are open to love like this will start asking better questions. Here's what we'll start asking. Not just am I spending time with people, my spouse, my kids, my friends, but how am I spending time with people? Not just I need to spend time with my community, but how am I spending that time with my community? How am I investing? How am I listening? How am I asking questions? How am I contributing in love? How am I encouraging? Not just, in, not just I need to say this to that person, but how do I say this to that person in love that points them to Jesus, that reflects him? Not just I need to walk with that person through this hard season, but how can I walk with this person through that hard season that shows them the love of Christ? I believe we do at Redemption. I believe we have a really beautiful, unique, great culture here. Something that I love. I believe you are very loving people. I believe, as, as Mark said, we're inviting. I think that we make people feel welcome. Usually for guests who come, that's one of the first things they say. Um, my brother and his wife were here about a month ago, and they said that too. They said, your people are so welcoming. They're so nice. We had like four conversations before the service even started. That's, that's never happened to us before right? I believe that we have something beautiful here that God has given us, but at the same time, I think we have to fight to hold on to that love component that's in our culture. I love what Mark said. I tried to write it down here. He said we could just be task-oriented. You know, we could just grab task-oriented people, but we don't want to do that. We want to, we want to really be a loving people. That's it. That's the heartbeat of this. We don't just want to be task-oriented. That's, that's not what God's called us to. You see, Jesus calls us back to our first love. Him calling us back to our first love is a call for a deeper understanding of what love really is. And uh, over the past month, I think I've, I've had a new understanding of, of what love really is. Um, there's this little guy. I, I brought a, a picture. How, how could I not? Maybe it'll come up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There he is. He's, uh, he's kind of posing. He's really pensive. I don't think he trusts anybody yet, and that's okay with me. Um, but a new understanding of what love really is, uh, mainly from 10 to 4 in the morning. Um, but but here's, what I, here's what I mean by that, is that honestly, I just want to spend time with him, spend time around him, get to know him, talk to him. 
all of these things. It's not, it's not this thing where I'm like, hey, I just want to check this box. I, I just want to be, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the difference between just being in the room with somebody and really being engaged with someone. That care, that heart, that desire, that, that peace that's there, that time that's spent, that, that love, it, it's not just the time that's spent, but it's the quality of the time that's spent. That it means something, that it goes deeper, that you don't just want to do the bare minimum. You know, and that you don't, I, I was thinking about this this morning too, like I don't, I don't look at, at him and I say, well, he's a task or he's a project to complete. And I think we can do that with people. And we can do that inside the church, but instead, no, this is a relationship to invest in. All right, you can change the picture because I'm going to get distracted. Um, I think this is what Jesus is getting at with the church. That it's not just about being physically present and accomplishing all of these works, but it's about being emotionally engaged and having the right heart and allowing God's love to continue to flow through them. This is really the heart of the gospel. What Jesus wants for us is to love him like he loves us. He demonstrated this love for us on the cross. I mean, all we have to do is go to the cross here. That Jesus suffered and he died for us, bearing our sins on this cross, not because he was forced to, not because he was checking a box, but because of his love for us and his desire to bring us into a relationship with the Father. Jesus never lost his passion for us. His love for us burns white hot. Jesus loves you just as much as he ever has this morning. Meaning that he was willing to sacrifice for you because that's what love does. Meaning that you are on his heart and on his mind because that's what love does. That he would give of himself so that you could experience good. That's what love does. That he would walk with us in the good and in the challenging, in the hard, because that's what love does. This is what Jesus has done for you. This is what Jesus wants for us to return to this type of love. His desire to be in a relationship with you is just as strong as it's ever been, and he wants that from us. And sometimes we can get so busy and we can get so distracted that we might lose track of that, and he's calling us back. So he invites us in. And then he ends by saying, if not, if you don't return, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent, unless you realize that this is true for you and you turn and you come back to this love and this changes, I'll remove your lampstand. What does it mean here? Well, churches and for our church, we may still have our building. We could still have our programs. We could have a busy schedule. We could have all the externals. We may be able to attract new people, have nice facilities, have great services. But the idea of having your lampstand removed is that the power of God will be missing, that he won't be among us. God will take his hand off the church and leave us just to go through the motions. What a tragic picture that that really paints for us, a group of people simply going through the motions of Christianity without the living God in their midst. I'd say there are many churches, even in our city, who are in this place of abandoning their love, maybe their love of Christ, allowing that love to go through them, taking up a false cross, living out a false mission. And this isn't what Jesus wants for us. He loves us far too much, which is why he says this and why he ends with this. He says, to those who have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hear this. Take it in. Apply it. Let it change you. Remember what I did for you at first. Remember my love and allow it to change you. Keep going back to the cross. Keep going back to the moments that you first believed. Keep going back to that sweet spot. 
I love this last part here. It says, to the one who conquers, to the one who does this, and Jesus has already conquered on our behalf, so we need to insert that. It's not just us and our good works conquering, but he's conquered on our behalf. So the one who hold on to him, hold fast, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. I love it. He brings us right back to the garden. He brings us right back to the beginning, to the garden of Eden when things were perfect. What's our motivation to return? Why should we return to our first love? It's not to earn God's love or with our works or, or look the part, but to find joy and fulfilling what he's called us to as we remember what he's called us from. That we're headed back to a time when love filled all time and space. When we carry one another's burdens, it's not in vain. When we worship together with passion for Jesus, that it's not in vain. When we sacrifice our time for one another, out of our love for one another, it's not wasted time. When we take time and spend time with Jesus, it's not because we're forced to, but it's because it's because we trust and believe. It's because we trust and believe that the king who came, the king who lived, the king who died, the king who rose, the king who overcame is the king who's coming back to, our fi- to take us to our final home, ultimately to be with him. This is why we hold fast to Christ, to his gospel, why we allow his love to dictate how we live, how we strive, how we serve, how we talk, how we point others to the hope that they can have in the one who's loved us so well. And it all begins and ends with God because God is love, God has shown us love, and God simply wants us to remember and respond in love, in love for him and in love for one another. This is not a call to do more, to be more. It's a call back home. I can't help but think about the prodigal son, the father that's waiting that wants nothing more than his son to return. This is a call back home. If there's areas in our life, in our church, where we've gone sideways or where we've abandoned love, it's a call to come back. It's not a call to be shamed. It's not a call to be condemned. It's a call to rest in the place that we were always intended to rest inside of God's love. And so how do we apply this today? Well, for some of us today, if you haven't started this relationship with Jesus, it's a call home that Jesus gave his life so that you could have life. And if you haven't experienced this type of love, maybe you've sought it out. Maybe you've tried to find it in other relationships. Maybe you just tried to go it on your own. Maybe you've been resistant. Maybe this is the first time that you're hearing about this type of love that God has for you, that he would give himself for you. Jesus would lay down his life for you, and he's calling you to him. And if that's you, today is your day. Like, he's calling you to him today. You can come home today. You can come to be with him today. He wants to know you. Well, how do I do that? How do I? Well, you remember what he's done, that he gave his life for you. You repent of your sin. God, I know that I've lived this life up until now and it's been really just kind of on my own and selfish and, and, and I've got all these things in my past and I want to bring those and I want to put them down before you. And then it's receiving the new life that he offers you, that he would be Savior and Lord of your life. So maybe that's it today. Maybe it starts there. For those of us who have a relationship with Jesus, it's just thinking through these things. It's reflecting. That's really what this letter should cause us to do, reflect on our life, reflect on how we live life in relationship with one another in the church, how we think about things in relationship to the church, how we think about serving, how we think about you know, connecting with one another, how we think about community and life groups. It should cause us to reflect and, and deeper than just you know, 30, 40 minutes on a Sunday morning, but to take this with us and to think about where is this true in my life? Are there areas or pockets in my life where love is missing, where the love of Christ is missing, where maybe I'm even striving just on my own, but I've kind of abandoned my reliance on Jesus? 
where my time with Jesus is kind of missing, it's kind of grown stale or it's, it's not even present, where do I need to come back to that? Maybe it's in my family, maybe it's in some of my other relationships, maybe it's even the way that I interact with my coworkers at work, it's not really loving, I find myself just trying to get what I need, not give, right? He's inviting us to take a step back and remember. And as we're going to do here in a moment when we take communion, he also is inviting us to repent, to be honest with him, to turn, to walk away from those things, to walk away from a hard heart, to walk away from the things that would hold us back from loving one another, from loving him, and then to move forward. This is what he invites us to. This is out of love that he gives us this letter. And so let's remember this, that Love, as we go about this week, as we leave here, that, that a real love, that it comes from God, it doesn't just ask what needs to be done, but it also asks, how does this need to be done? How can I care? How can I pour myself out? How can I ultimately reflect Jesus in my life, inside of the church and to those outside of the church? In the areas where we may have abandoned, would we come back? May we be a church that's always, always seeking to go deeper in our love of Christ so that we can love Him well, we can love others well.